0: I'd like you to think for just a moment how many times you've run into a situation where you looked at something, saw some of the details, or got your first impression, and immediately you reached a conclusion, only later to find out that you were completely wrong. I'm guessing most of us don't have to think too long or too hard to recollect the last time that has happened. Let me up the ante. It's not just a situation we're talking about. How often does it happen where somebody says something to us or we see them doing something and we automatically assume we understand exactly what's going on only later to discover we've completely misjudged that person? I find especially today, given all of our modern forms of communication, this is happening more and more. For instance, an email, while it can communicate a basic message, doesn't have the emotion The facial expressions, and so oftentimes I find myself having to read an email over and over again just to make sure I'm getting what the person is saying. And if you're not guilty of misjudging other people, I'm sure you can recollect probably without much effort the last time that something you said, something you did was completely misjudged by somebody else. I can't think of many things, at least in my perspective, that hurts as much as somebody calling us something we're not or thinking we've done something we haven't to be misjudged. Which leads us into the situation today of the, if you will, pinnacle situation of misjudgment. I introduced last Sunday the Lent series that we're doing through on these Sundays, introduce it as Mark's mini-series. And you can see why it gets that name. We're doing episode after episode of the Passion History from the Gospel of Mark. And at that time, I reminded you one of the reasons we're doing it this way is because the Passion History is so familiar to so many of us. So it's nice to find a different perspective And Mark genuinely offers that. We had a taste of that last Sunday when we looked into the courtyard where Peter denied Jesus those three times. And now today we shift our attention beyond that to the courtyard of the palace of Pontius Pilate where this misjudging takes place. Now the lesson is a bit longer, 15 verses, so I'm not going to read this in all of its detail and we won't study every last word of it, but we will get a good impression of what the Holy Spirit has marked doing with this general overview. I'm going to show you a video of the text in just a few moments, but before we actually take a look at the text, let's just look at this first verse and see how Mark transitions us from our last study, episode one of the miniseries, to today's study, episode two. And he does it by means of a time element, very early in the morning. And then the attention shifts from the palace of the high priest now to the legal trial in the Roman court system. It does two things. It sets the scene for what we're going to study today. But as we leave the high priest's palace, it also tells us that the misjudgment had begun long before our lesson today. There were at least 18 violations by the Sanhedrin of their own laws and the Mosaic legal system for the nation of Israel, which they broke having that trial for Jesus. I've listed just a few. Some are obvious. You don't hold a trial at night. You don't hold a trial outside of the quarters of the Sanhedrin, such as in the palace of the high priest. I listed the last one and the one that's quite important and helps us to understand where Mark's going to take us today. It's this change of accusation against Jesus. The Sanhedrin found Jesus guilty and worthy of death for the sin of blasphemy. After all, he called himself the Son of God. He says he's Messiah. For any other person, that would be an accurate charge. Except here stood before them the one man that could actually say these things. And yet when they take him to Pontius Pilate, they begin with that charge only to then change it to the charge of treason. They realized that this blasphemy thing wasn't going to matter in the Roman court system. In fact, they said to Pilate, We have a law, and according to this law, this man must die. And Pilate said, You judge him by your own rules. And their objection was, Well, we can't kill him, because you Romans are in control. And that's what led into today. So to see this misjudgment of the only man who ever walked this earth who was completely holy, who was truly the Son of God, who was the promised Messiah, let's consider this next episode from Mark's mini-series.
1: And straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate, And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto them, Thou sayest it. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing. So that Pilate marveled. Now at that feast he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy, but the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! Then Pilate said unto them, Why, what evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him! And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified."
0: Maybe you're already uh, being reminded of some of the details of how the Holy Spirit has Mark write his gospel, because within those 15 verses he basically covers the entire legal trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Um, I'd like to just refresh our memories on a few of those. Uh, and. Try and start to shift our attention as to how the Holy Spirit has Mark write. First and foremost, Mark writes in a very precise, a very compact manner. He doesn't add in a lot of details. Mark's is the shortest of the four Gospels. Not because he doesn't have as much to say, but he gets right to the point, And he does that uh, with this too. The other thing is, is I need to remind you that Mark is writing to Gentile readers, primarily of a Roman Background And that just comes blaring through today if we understand how to study this lesson. So let me take both of these and and show you from the opening verses of our study exactly how the Holy Spirit has Mark do these things and and why the Holy Spirit has Mark do these things. The trial before Pilate was actually in two phases. I think sometimes if you read through Mark, uh, you miss that because he doesn't include this middle bit of activity. But if we lay it out according to all of the Gospels, so they take Jesus from the palace of the high priest, lead him to the praetorium, that is the judgment seat of Pontius Pilate. They don't go in, they argue from outside and they basically lay out their charges. We have this brief conversation between Jesus and Pilate and basically it's all revolving around him being a king and he doesn't deny that. And it's within this we have this shift from accusing Jesus of blasphemy to now trying to convince Pontius Pilate that Jesus is a threat to national security. And the phrase that they use is recorded by the other gospels "Is he started in Galilee and he's brought this trouble all the way down here. At which point we see what Pilate's trying to do. He's no fool. He knows why they bring Jesus. We're told it's out of envy. They're jealous and he kept looking for ways to let Jesus go. When he hears Jesus is from Galilee, that's when this action takes place that Mark doesn't even tell us about. Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, hoping that Herod will adjudicate this case. Because after all, Herod was in control up in the province of Galilee. And maybe Pilate thought, okay, this one is off my docket. I can go home and just chill out for the rest of the day. And that doesn't work. Because the other gospel writers tell us that Herod had been wanting to see Jesus. He was hoping Jesus would perform some tricks for him. He'd heard about the miracles, but Jesus doesn't play any of those games. And so Here it basically mocks him. His soldiers put him in that that robe, and then he sends him back to Pilate, which leads into the second phase of the trial. And there's a, a distinct difference. Here, Jesus isn't all beat up. He's not wearing the crown of thorns. Here he is, because during the second phase, which grows more intense in action, much more violent, at a certain point, basically, Pilate punishes Jesus for being innocent. And he's trying to get the people to let Jesus go just because he looks pathetic. Because here, I beat up the guy that you don't like, but he certainly doesn't deserve death. And as time goes on, more and more, the people get worked up. The religious leaders kind of rile them up, and they call out for his crucifixion. They're not going to settle for anything less than the execution of Jesus. Pilate finally gets his head around this and finally gives in to all this. Now, there's certain aspects from Mark I think we want to see. Not only the fact that he doesn't include this, but the fact of the things that he does include. For instance, the Roman readers would have quickly picked up on the fact that if Jesus was actually a king, he would have found some way in which to defend himself. Because for all of the flaws of the Roman government, one of the things that tended to work right was the legal system. And so at very least, if Jesus was of royal birth or an innocent man, most people would have hired the best lawyers and had a string of witnesses who would have vouched for his innocence. And Mark is careful to point out, not only does Jesus not do that, but it baffles Pontius Pilate. He's amazed. He stands in wonderment. Why doesn't this guy defend himself? In fact, Jesus doesn't only not defend himself, seems like he doesn't even care if he ends up dying. This is the message that starts to come through. And please, what you need to understand is the Holy Spirit has marked right for a unique audience. And there are certain things in this lesson, in episode two of this miniseries, that that we need to understand, that we need to get our heads around to appreciate this part of the passion history. This intrigues the minds of Roman readers going, why doesn't this innocent guy try to stop what's going on? Well, there's something else that you should understand. What Mark does focus on a lot is this goofy custom of Pontius Pilate. And remember, Mark explains the customs of the Jews to the Roman people, so he puts that in there. Every year at the time of the Passover, which was the Jews' biggest feast, Pilate would have this custom of releasing one prisoner. I'm pretty sure we're all familiar with that. We heard about that in the Passion History Studies of the Past. And of course, you've all probably remember the choice that Pilate offers to the people are Jesus, who obviously has done nothing wrong, or Barabbas, who is described as an insurrectionist, committed murder. And this is important that you see he committed murder in the uprising. There's a definite article in there. So what Mark is referencing is something that has just recently happened that these people would have been familiar with. It's another episode in the tension that existed between the Roman government and the Jewish people. Have you ever really stopped to ask yourself, why did Pilate choose Barabbas? And I mean beyond the obvious, he wasn't just wanting to offer them a lopsided choice. There were other people in prison who were convicted of just as serious crimes, but why Barabbas? And again, try to understand the audience to whom Mark is writing and the intentions of the Holy Spirit. The Roman readers needed to understand that Pilate wasn't just trying to wiggle out of doing his job. Pilate was setting the people up. And the insurrection, the revolt, helps us to understand that. For about 100 years now, the Romans had been in charge of the land of Israel. For about a hundred years now, there had been this uneasy tension going on between Rome and Jerusalem. And a lot of times we explain all this away by saying Pilate was a coward. He did the cowardly thing. He let the people have their way. And certainly he didn't want a riot to start, but the question is why? Why was that such a problem, and how did we reach this point? I want to share with you a little bit of a historical video. It's a little bit longer, so I'm going to ask that you pay attention, because what it does is it takes us through the history of this tension from when it began up until the time of our lesson. There are specific reasons why God has the Holy Spirit talk about Barabbas and why he was in prison, and he wasn't just a bad guy. But there was something specific about this offer of Pontius Pilate to the people. So let me share that history with you, and then we'll reflect on that. The Jewish revolt against
2: Rome changed Jewish history in an unbelievable way.
3: While the second temple stood in Jerusalem, the Jews lived under mostly foreign rule. At first, when the Jews returned to Judea from the Babylonian captivity to build the second temple, they peacefully submitted to Persian rule. Then, with the sudden rise of Alexander the Great, the entire region came under Greek subjugation, including the Jewish homeland in 332 BCE. As before, the Jews bore their foreign yoke in silence. But the calm was shattered when Antiochus IV Epiphanes, a Syrian Greek tyrant, declared war on the Jewish religion.
2: There's no evidence for any attempt of Jews to revolt against the foreign rulers until you get to the point of the Maccabean revolt when persecution of Jews begins.
3: The Maccabean Revolt brought full independence to the Jewish people for the first time since the start of the Second Temple era. Eight Maccabean monarchs sustained this independence, until the passing of Queen Shlomzion, or Salome Alexandra, in 67 BCE. Then, civil war erupted between the supporters of the Queen's two sons, Arkanos and Aristobulus, both of whom claimed the throne in 63 BCE, the sparring heirs to the Maccabean crown made the disastrous mistake of approaching the legendary Roman general Pompey for arbitration, thereby inviting foreign interference into the governance of the Jewish homeland. By that time, the Romans really wanted to control Eretz Yisrael. First of all, for
2: economic reasons, they were trying to create a breadbasket for ancient Rome, because they had insufficient food. Second of all, and this is really important here, they needed a kind of fortress, a boundary line, against the Parthians, who by that time had moved from what we today call Iran into areas of
3: Babylonia, Iraq of today. Pompey chose Hyrcanus as the ninth Maccabean king, but when his brother Aristobulus rejected Pompey's decision, the Roman general invaded the land of Israel and seized control of the kingdom slaughtering thousands of Jews in the process. The
2: upshot of what
3: happened was that this is where the country came under Roman rule. Thus began decades of crippling taxation and oppression that impoverished the nation. Most Jews were willing to settle for Roman rule as long as the Romans left them alone beyond
2: taxation. But some of these people were not. And so you could even say that the sparks of the eventual Jewish revolt against Rome began to burn From the second the Romans arrived.
3: In 54 BCE, the Roman proconsul Crassus looted all of the gold in the Holy Temple's treasury to fund his expedition against the Parthians. In 46 BCE, Herod, then governor of the Galilee, massacred hundreds of Jews to enforce excessive taxation on behalf of Rome. Two years later, The Roman proconsul Cassius sold the Jews of four towns as slaves as a penalty for failing to pay the steep taxes Cassius had imposed on the residents of Judea to fund his war against Mark Antony. The national tragedy thickened in 42 BCE when the Roman ruler Mark Antony installed Herod as client king. Herod impoverished the populace through massive taxation to fund the construction of lavish palaces, fortresses, Greek temples, and new cities. Just before his death in 4 BCE, he installed an image of an eagle, the symbol of Roman rule on the Holy Temple, and then massacred the Jewish sages and their students who dared to remove it. Shortly after his death, Herod's son Archelaus succeeded him and promptly massacred over 3,000 Jews. In desperation, the Jews turned to Rome, pleading that their homeland be annexed to the Roman province of Syria, so that instead of tyrannical puppet kings, Syrian proconsuls could govern them as fairly as they governed Syria itself. Rome acceded to this request in 6 CE, and the terror of the client kings came to an end. The net result of
2: this is that the Romans put in a system of procurators. These procurators were kind of local governors under the larger province of Syria. Now some of these people were great people, like Marcus Tullius Cicero, the great
3: orator and lawyer from Rome, but some of them were horrible. A number of procurators sought to amass personal wealth via excessive taxation and other corrupt means. This angered the population of Judea. The obligation
2: of a Roman governor was to deliver a predetermined amount of tax money to Rome. Furthermore, these Roman governors were allowed to keep as much
3: of the money that they could collect beyond that amount. The procurators were also frequently indifferent to Jewish religious sensibilities. In 30 CE, procurator Pontius Pilate ordered his soldiers to carry their standards with images of the Roman emperor through Jerusalem. Now the problem of the Roman standards was that they were worshipped by the Romans, so they were idolatrous images. This was a dire offense to Jewish sensibilities, especially in their sacred capital.
0: Okay. Between thirty. 37- I know that's a lot to absorb, but I'm trying to help you to understand this from the vantage point of Mark's readers. While a lot of this might be news to us to understand this tension that had been going on for decades now, you should also understand there was genuinely a thick tension between Pontius Pilate and the Jewish people. In fact, the reason Barabbas was in prison was because of Pontius Pilate, and the things that he was inflicting upon the Jewish people. Now, so you understand the choice that he's offering to the Jews in the courtyard that that morning was either this man who's obviously innocent or Barabbas. If I release him, basically, it's like taking a couple sticks of dynamite and throwing a match at it. Because while the Jews loved revolution against the Romans, every time somebody tried to revolt, the Romans brought in more soldiers to put it down. And you heard about the thousands of people who had been put to death. Now if you follow to its ultimate conclusion, in about 40 years after this, the Romans finally get fed up. They destroy the city of Jerusalem, the second temple. That's the whole Masada incident where they try to escape, and ultimately Rome crushes the rebellion of the nation of Israel. We're right in the midst of that, and that's the offer that Pilate uh, uh, puts before these people. Now, if Mark was writing to Jewish people. All he would have needed to have done was to cite Isaiah 57, one of the Old Testament prophecies, to say, look at Jesus. He fulfills perfectly all of the Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah saw what Messiah would come to do and how he would be abused and misjudged But Mark's readers are unfamiliar with the Old Testament. They don't have a handle on those prophecies the way Mark's own people did. And so what God has Mark do is actually attack this whole concept of understanding Messiah from a completely Gentile point of view. You see, three times Pilate declared Jesus innocent. And to the Roman mind, understanding the legal system, this man should have been let go. And the Roman mind understood that Barabbas wasn't just a bad guy. He was enemy number one to the Roman Empire. And this is the choice offered to these people, and they choose Barabbas. Now, so you see what the Holy Spirit is doing here. He's not just showing us the terrible misjustice that took place. He's actually teaching these Gentile readers the concept of atonement. Because the obviously guilty man gets to go free, and the obviously innocent man has to die in his place. The entire Old Testament spends time teaching this concept of atonement, and in one offer. The Holy Spirit, through Mark, teaches these Gentile readers what God's plan of salvation was all about. The guilty go free, the innocent dies. So it's more than just a misjudgment of what's going on in the courtyard of Pontius Pilate. Oh, the people made a a stupid choice. It's brilliant from God's perspective. He just shows an entire nation of people how all along he had planned to rescue sinners from a judgment of an eternity in hell. Now, they would have got it better than we got it, and we had to do a lot of work to get there because the video had it right, but the translation is wrong. Pilate doesn't actually stand up in front of the people and go, what crime has he committed? The word that he uses literally is, what sin? What evil has this man done? You have to understand that even though the Roman people usually used the Latin language, they were more than familiar with the Greek language, And they understood a clear differentiation between the word that Pilate used, kakos, and this word, aitea. That's the one that stands for a legal crime. In fact, that's the word that is used for a capital crime. And if Pilate was only referencing what he had done, as far as all of the rules and laws of the Roman government goes, he would have chosen the other word. But what Pilate is declaring is, I've examined this man closely, and I can't even see that he's done anything evil. This is a good man, is what Pontius Pilate is saying. And to the Roman mindset, it's like, this is just ludicrous. How could they choose Barabbas over this man? And that brings us right back to the whole purpose of the Holy Spirit having Mark record these events for Roman readers. How could God choose the death of his own dear son in place of everybody who has ever committed a sin? Which is... From a human perspective, the the most terrible misjudgment of all. The innocent die for the guilty. And yet that has been God's plan of salvation all along. And then this final verse, Mark wraps us all up. And he does it in the typical Mark fashion. Not a lot of detail, no fluff here. He just gets right to it. But again, he's writing to Roman readers. Because as soon as we're told that Jesus is handed over to be flogged, a Roman reader knows what that means. Flogging comes from the name of the actual whip that the soldiers would use. And just take a look at it. They used it to try and inflict the most pain that they could upon a man who was condemned to die. In fact, history records that there were a lot of condemned men who never made it to the cross because they would lose so much blood from the flogging, the scourging. It tears the back up. The blood flows easily and freely. And people understood, Roman people understood, the suffering really began. And that handing them over to the Soldiers, that's the death sentence because from this point there was no turning back. Once the soldiers had him, the next thing meant marching him out to the cross where he would die and from this point on, everything would be slow, cruel, brutal until the moment of death. That's how Mark ends episode two of his miniseries. I hope what's not lost in the gruesome details or from taking the extra time to understand the Holy Spirit's perspective through Mark's record of this, is something that God has Mark do in each and every one of the episodes of his miniseries, and that's to offer us just a moment to pause and reflect on each of these events from our perspective. Because we don't look at this from Jewish terms or Roman terms, we look at them from our terms, modern terms, American terms. And we all understand how important justice is. In fact, we have just a few moments to stand in the place of Pontius Pilate upon the judge's seat. And obviously we would have judged differently than he did, or so we think. Because there have been plenty of times in our lives where if we stop to think about it, not only have we misjudged others, but we've followed Pilate's lead in not doing the thing that we know is the right thing to do. Instead, choosing to do that, which is not just against the law, but against God's law. One of the beautiful things about the miniseries for Mark is it lets us stop for just a moment and consider our place in all this, and then what it does is it redirects our attention from the minor characters in this miniseries back to the main character in this miniseries, the man who's standing trial. And what it does is it forces us to ask a question that in many ways reflects something similar that Pilate asks. He asks, what's truth? Well, I think today we would have to ask, what's just? What is justice? And I say that because if you look around our world today, if you examine our culture, it seems to be the number one request, dare I say demand, of people today. We want justice. We demand justice. Now before I say another thing, I want to clarify what I am saying and what I'm not saying, because this is obviously a touchy issue. And I'm not going to start preaching politics at you But what I do want you to understand is how this lesson from Mark's mini-series so appropriately applies to our lives today. What we have to do is consider that each and every person that we interact with and that is in this world is a precious creation of God. That each person has an eternal soul. And while we're not responsible the way God is, God does invite us to share his love and our light with those people. But we have to be very careful that we understand true justice. Because true justice determines that no one person is anything less, and listen carefully, anything more than any other person. In God's eyes, we are all truly equal. Which means that we don't determine somebody's value or worth based on a skin color, color, based on their social standing, based on their economic standing, according to true justice, we have to see everybody as a creation of God. Now, why do I say this? Because human justice will never be accomplished until we humans understand divine justice. Because let's be honest, in this day and age and in this culture, nowadays people are calling for justice, and it's becoming more and more popular to achieve that through revolution. In fact, many crimes, which we know are clearly against our laws, are being committed in the name of justice. If you stop to think about it, that's a very Barabbas way of determining what justice is. On the other hand, we shouldn't dismiss those who should be standing up for justice, a legal system, but then also the citizens of our country. But far too often, people are willing to turn the other way. Nobody wants to make noise. Let's go along so that we don't stand out. Let's make sure that we don't make any waves. And if you think about it, that's a very Pontius Pilate way of doing justice. And neither one Neither one will achieve what we humans desperately want deep in our hearts. We want fairness. We want things to be right. We want justice. Not because we're so superior or because we're so intellectual, but because God created that within us. God tells us what is right, and God tells us what is wrong. And until we understand God's system of justice, we will never have it. Again, I want to be very clear. It is God's second table of law which invites us and then empowers us, if you will, to genuinely care about one another and to show God's love to each other. Justice will never be achieved by somebody passing a human law or by people looking deep inside themselves and finding just a little bit more love and tolerance because each and every one of us has a flawed system of justice. So how do we know what divine justice is? Well, let's stop and review Mark's episode two of his miniseries. God's divine justice demands condemnation. That's kind of a watered-down word. Let me say it differently. God's system of justice demands damnation for everybody who has sinned, which would include you and would include me. And yet God's system of justice allows for mercy to every single person who has ever sinned. And we see that because that man is willing to die for that man who has no idea what justice is, or that man who has no clue what true justice is, or all of the people in the courtyard yelling for his crucifixion because they have no idea what justice is. And that man is willing to die for you, and that man is willing to die for me. Though we deserve condemnation, all of us equally, though we deserve hell, that man is willing to step into our place so that God the Father can equally show each and every one of us his mercy. And until we understand that concept, until we embrace divine justice, We will never be able to genuinely show human justice in this world or to each other. And so if we really want justice, if we really want people to understand the difference between right and wrong, we don't do that from our perspective, from our moral directives. We do it from God's perspective, the one who is willing to allow the innocent to die for the guilty. Remember what Mark's goal is and the reason why he ends with this man witnessing the crucifixion of God's son and declaring the fact that this is the son of God. He's speaking to a people who were not raised with the same benefits of the gospel that we were. And for the very first time, many of them are hearing about what it means for God to love this world that much that he would value them more than he would value his own Son the Holy Spirit is trying to do through every episode of Mark's miniseries miniseries, is to actually teach us about justice. That at the cost of Christ's life is the only way in which we can truly find what love is. And there's probably no better place to start to find out what that love is than in the courtyard of the palace of Pontius Pilate, the procreator who hated the Jews and the governor that the Jews wanted to rebel against. The tension between these two groups is thick, and it's on full display as on one hand stands Jesus Christ and on the other hand Barabbas. You and I get to stand there right between them and recognize that even though he was misjudged, God will love us.
4: The human mind is a tricky thing when it is analyzed by the human brain. We determine worth in all sorts of ways and metrics, looking to see how we measure up, what our life is worth. And people often think this thought, who would miss me when I'm gone? They find solace in work and other activities, always pushing to the corners of their mind, this question of value. Value is not net worth, looks, or even divine intelligence. Value is the equation of what you would cost if a price were to be put on you. That is the definition in the most logical sense. There was one who came, the King of kings and Lord of lords, his name is Jesus. And The God of all the universe thought this perfect one, the savior of the earth, was worth getting you back. The God who could have made anything that this world considers valuable. All the gold, all the silver, and all the diamonds were not enough to get you back. It simply did not cost enough. There was more required, something that had more value than everything that this world has ever seen or possessed. His name is Jesus, and he thought that you were worth dying for. He looked down and he said every lash, every whip, and bruise and bit of torture leading to death was worth your heart. The one who was priceless thought you were worth everything. So to those who have been told you are not worthy of love, or lesser in any way, whoever spoke those words did not know what it cost to get you back. And for those of you who would even consider the thought of taking your own life, know that the God of all the universe saw your face. And as he did on the cross for you, As he died on the cross for you, thinking of your face, your name, your destiny, and your future, knowing it was worth dying for, that you and who you would become is worth dying for. That is the value that is placed on you from the one who possesses all value and is most valuable. His love for you has been there before time and has not given up on you, for it has no quit, and its vision is that of perfected promise in essence it sees what truly is and is to become not by just pure glances and past judgments it sees that you are worth it you are loved do not discount or give away what jesus paid everything for his life just for you